Hello and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about um, old things and books and whatever things we've been reading recently and kind of whatever we want to talk about for an hour at a time, if I'm being honest, 170 episodes in or whatever we're at right now. Uh, my name is Thomas Magby. I am joined, as always, by Mr. Graham Donaldson Hey-o. and Mr. A.J. Hannenberg. This guy right here. I feel, are we working on a, like our tagline? Like I like that as a, we say our names and we have like the phrase we say afterwards. AO is a, Oh, do we like waka waka? Yeah. We need to be able to trademark these things. Yeah, well, we're all our own independent brands. And so we need to build that out, please. All right. So today we are, again, I'm not very good at thinking up the quips at the beginning of this. Um, we're talking about difficult to spell names. I think there's like a funny little, slash through one of the letters in his name is, is that actually correct and i think an umlaut if that's what it's called no, aren't there no. two little dots in his first name nope oh really i don't no, think no. so i thought we were talking about the army around kirk the, the, the kirkgaard the, 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 the kirkgaard yeah <laughs> um apparently soren kirkgaard was yep. so unliked in his day Good. that like people didn't name their kids soren for like 50 years in denmark funny story my one of my college best friends was named soren there you go after soren kirkgaard he's even got the little cross through the o oh it's good for him cool um, yes, so inspired by um, our foray into ex- somewhat existentialist thought. No, sorry, we the foray into we, we existentialist into thought. Yeah. I, I'm always of two minds whether or not Kierkegaard is existentialist or not. I mean, does he call himself does, existentialist? Uh, does, does, any, get... does any existentialist call themselves existentialist? Ooh, wow. No, they just call Ooh, themselves like this guy. philosophers. Or <laughs> Um, but anyway, while they're smoking their cigarettes, um, right? when we were, re- I guess we were doing the life str- makes me nauseous. <laughs> the stranger is that what we were looking at? We did the stranger. stranger. We stranger. did myth of Sisyphus. Myth, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, looking at that sort of system of thought, I think we quipped in that episode, "Oh, we should do something on Kierkegaard." And so, I went and found my old copy of Fear and Trembling, and uh, decided I was going to read it. And was like, "Oh man, I remember why I had to take a course on this. This is intense stuff." <laughs> but so we're going to be looking at Soren Kierkegaard and his idea of faith and how he thinks that faith as defined in the Bible um, is um, the attitude and disposition of the happy man because he can embrace absurdity. That's kind of Soren Kierkegaard's um, sort of thesis in a nutshell. I'm into it. Um, (laughs) And he, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, sort of he has a number of things to say against people that have fully developed systems of thought, and we'll get there in a second. Mm-hmm. And also he has things to say about um, uh, pre- basically preachers or, or biblical interpreters who dumb down questions of faith to be sort of palatable little like um, – like wine mom kitchen plaques. Like he, he doesn't, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Yeah. He doesn't want, he, so he thinks that dumbing down the question, the, the, the examples of faith in scripture is fruitless or is sort of uh, maybe even um, um, counterproductive, but so too are people that try to devise full systems of thought that can like take into account everything. Okay. Um, and so where he starts is he starts with the story of Abraham being asked, told by God to go sacrifice Isaac. So when Kierkegaard starts his book, at the beginning, he talks about himself. He says, there was once a man, uh, he had learned as a child that beautiful tale of how God tried Abraham. And then he says that this man who loved that story grew up. When he became older, he read the same story with even greater admiration, for life had divided what had been united in the child's pious simplicity. So he's like, when I was a kid, I heard that story and it made sense. And then as I grew older, I heard that story and it didn't make sense. (laughs) Um, and, And he said that as he's gotten older, he has been absolutely enamored with the story of Abraham. And he thinks that the character and attitude of Abraham sort of, um, embodies this disposition that he thinks that the happy man or the good man should should embody. So I thought maybe to start with, we have to kind of frame the story of Abraham a little bit because he makes, uh, Soren Kierkegaard assumes a high level of sort of uh, fluency with, with the Old Testament. So um, in brief, Abraham was an old man and his him and Sarah, his wife, had no children and God came to him and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. Um, see, he's like, look at the stars. See all those stars? There's going to be more of your children on earth than there are stars in the sky. And Abraham was like, awesome. 
And he goes and tells Sarah. And anybody remember what Sarah does? She laughs. She laughs. She laughs at him. She laughs at, at him. Now, there's sort of two ways you can take that laugh. She was either like being like, bah, I'll believe it when I see it, which is sort of, I think, how it's supposed to be taken. Or some people have taken it as like she was so overjoyed with God's promise that she broke into laughter. I don't think that's it. I think she was more like, bah, don't believe it. Anyway. So, how old were they at this time? Like 90, right? yeah. like 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 past childbearing years, even for the Old Testament. I would guess it's more like a Mah. yeah, exactly. And so um, God tells Abraham, and Abraham says okay. And then um, eventually Abraham like tries to take it in matters into his own hands, and he has like a bastard kid with uh, Hagar. His, with Hagar. Uh, that kid's named Ishmael. And then Sarah conceives and has a child named Isaac. And Isaac is the child of promise. For, from Isaac, all of uh, uh, Abraham's descendants are going to come. And then in Genesis 22, God calls Abraham to take Isaac to the Mount of, I think it's Mount Mora, and sacrifice Isaac to God on the mountain. Um, and so I'm just going to look at, um, um, I'm going I'm to read a little bit of the story. Um, this is from the old King James because it's the only copy that I could find on Hannenberg's library shelf. Um, so if it sounds a little antiquated, well, it just adds to the classical stuff, I suppose. Yeah, that like gold. Do like, you, I yeah. have other versions. Would do you? you like, yeah. Yeah, it's probably easier if Let you me do see the. What the I got. Hold on. Um, we may we may just be spending too much time trying to uh, untangle the uh, the words. The, the old. I have the new the King old James. Words. <laughs> uh, if you want to go see if you can find a copy, I'll, so God says to Abraham, "All right, I want you to uh, take Isaac, what go." Chapter? Hmm? What chapter? To Genesis 22. Take as Isaac, go to the mountain, and, um, and and offer him up as a sacrifice. How about ESV? Sure, I'll take it. So let me read a little bit of it. Um, uh, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, with whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Um, and then Abraham comes un- and he unhesitatingly takes the knife and he's going to, s- he binds his son Isaac to the altar and he's going to slay him. And an angel comes down and the angel's like, Whoa, don't. And then he points over that there is a ram whose horns are caught in the thicket, and uh, uh, Abraham sacrifices a ram instead of Isaac. Okay, that's the story of um, of of uh, the the sacrifice of of Isaac. Um, and Kierkegaard has lots to say about Adam's disposition and also what we don't get from Adam's disposition. Um, so now you've sort of got that idea in the background. Um, Kierkegaard starts his book basically uh, in his preface he did you um, say which book this is? this is called Fear and Trembling okay. yeah uh, Kierkegaard starts Fear and Trembling by basically um, dunking on philosophers who claim to have full systems of thought if you follow this system of thought anything in this life and in this world um, should be able to fit into it and you would be able to understand it. And if something doesn't fit into it, um, you're too stupid to sort of figure it out. Sure. So um, uh, a lot of the commentators say that he's um, getting real grumpy with, with uh, Hegel and Hegelian thought. I don't know enough about Hegel to, to speak uh, competently on that. Um, but it's clear that Kierkegaard is looking at people who, you know, uh, who ascribe to philosophies and whole methods of sort of interpretation of the world and saying like they aren't big enough to contain all of human experience in whether it's Hegelian, whether it's empiricism, whether it's whatever um, he says you have the um, um, you're, if, if you think that, that that full systems of thought are going to be able to explain things uh, you're you're not big-minded you're too small-minded okay 
Okay, so that's how he starts the book. He sort of, um, uh, he's, and for some reason, he like tries to say that Descartes wasn't one of these people. We don't need to worry about that. Um, so Kierkegaard, um, um, he starts his book by giving a bunch of different interpretations of the story of Abraham that he thinks aren't big enough, that he thinks would be bad interpretations of, of the story of Abraham. So one of them is where, um, like, Abraham gets up, and he takes his son Isaac, and he takes the wood, and they walk up the mountain, and Abraham um, um, basically, and he, and he says that Abraham turns to his son Isaac and says, guess what? I'm not your dad, and I'm going to murder you. And Abraham does this because um, he says that it's better that he believe I am a monster then he lose faith in thee, O Lord. So, um, um, and there's a couple of other stories where like Abraham does this and then the ram is presented and Abraham's like, phew, I'm glad that worked. But deep in his heart from that day on, Abraham became old. He could not forget that God had demanded this of him. Isaac throve as before, but Abraham's eyes were darkened. He saw joy no more. So he has a couple of these readings of the story of Abraham where, um, uh, uh, we, we have conclusions and interpretations of how Abraham viewed this story that aren't in the Bible. Right. So the one is like, he tried to make sure that Isaac didn't know that it was God that required the sacrifice. And there was one where he's like, how can I ever trust God again that he should demand this of me? And there's another interpretation where Isaac was like, Ugh, this God seems right. like bad news. Right. Uh, my dad seems like hardcore into this whole God thing, but I don't know. That's pretty intense. Um, and he's just presenting these as alternatives to. He, he's presenting these as like it's unclear why he does this. Yeah, he just sort of presents these as ways to read a story. I think in light of the rest of the book, you can see that he's he's saying that these would be the the interpretations of Abraham if we were to see Abraham as a tragic hero, which right. he really wants us not to see Abraham as a tragic hero. Um, um, uh, there's one where. Um, Abraham is about to kill Isaac, but his face with, is filled with anguish, and his hand sh uh, uh, is shaking, and he can't, and he like can't bring himself to do it. And then the ram is presented, and Abraham's like, "Phew!" And Isaac ha sees this anguish and like decides not to tell anybody that his dad doubted at the last moment. Right. Yep. So, um, so Kierkegaard sort of starts off the story with a bunch of of embellishments of the story that aren't there because he wants to point out that this is not how Abraham acted. Abraham acted um, unthinkingly, believing that God was going to uh, was going to provide something miraculous, even though God told him to do something that was in direct opposition to the promise God had made. Mm. So this is the big sticking thing for for Kierkegaard. God promises to Kierkegaard a vision. And God is not lying and not lying about this. You will have a multitude of generation of generations after you. And then God has also come down and said, take Isaac to the mountain and sacrifice him. And for Kierkegaard, Abraham holds both of these opposing views at the same time, believing in both of them. Um, so the 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 sort of um, the amazingness of the faith that Abraham had was that he both believed that that God was doing right by wanting the sacrifice and that God was not going back on his promise. He was holding almost like opposing views at the same time. Um, uh, and he and he wasn't doubting. So um, uh, this is what so Kierkegaard says this about um, Abraham's faith was not one that had doubt. Um, uh, let me just read this. But Abraham had faith and did not doubt. He believed the ridiculous. If Abraham had doubted, then he would have done something else, something great and glorious. For how could Abraham have done other what is great and glorious? He would have marched out to the mountain in Moriah, chopped the firewood, set light to the fire, drawn the knife. He would have cried out to God, do not scorn this sacrifice. It is not the best I possess. That well I, uh, well I know. For what is an old man compared to the child of promise, but is the best I can give? Let Isaac never come to know that he may comfort himself in his young years. 
he would have thrust the knife into his own breast. He would have been admired in the world and his name for uh, and his name never forgotten. But it is one thing to be admired, another to be a guiding star that saves the anguished. So he said if if Abraham had had doubt, Abraham would have sacrificed himself instead of Isaac. He would have stand stood up and said take accept this sacrifice instead because Abraham in his mind was thinking like man God's this God's like totally screwing up this story. Like what's, what is happening? Why is God doing this? Kierkegaard says that is the rational thing to have done. That is like the, 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 the place of doubt, but heroicism. Uh, that, um, and so um, Kierkegaard would say, if Abraham believed that God's system was fully coherent, um, when faced with incoherence, he would have tried to make it coherent by sacrificing himself. But Abraham had faith in the absurdity of um, God's commands and still went forward into it with faith. So even in the light of something that was seemingly contradictory, um, Abraham still acted in faith by taking the wood by walking up the mountain. Kierkegaard like puts, takes great pains in to say, Abraham didn't get to the mountain late. Abraham didn't get to the mountain early. Abraham didn't look for ways out of this. He sort of just, you know, did his job and kind of walked to the mountain. Um, um, and then, so Kierkegaard, uh, uh, um, it's kind of like a disjointed book. Um, uh, it's kind of just, it seems like the ramblings of a crazy person. So is it, um, is it split into chapters? It's split into chapters. It's split, so the first part is like the little, the stories of, of how not to interpret Abraham. Okay. Then the next part is he's got this sort of like elegy of how awesome Abraham is. Okay. And then the second part of the book is he starts to talk about, um, some of the characteristics of the, of the man of faith or what he calls the knight of faith okay. in opposition to what he calls the night of infinite resignation. So maybe we should talk about those, those two things. Um, um, Kierkegaard says that the preacher who is trying to interpret this story, who says Abraham was willing to give his all to God, we should be willing to give our all to God. He says that's not the right, that's, that's the like lame interpretation, that's the like, uh, the lazy man's interpretation of this story. That's not how to characterize faith. He says, um, you can maybe do that with the rich young ruler story, that the rich young ruler was not willing to give all that he had to God, but we should, congregation. He says, that's how you should preach the rich young ruler. You should not preach that story um, that Abraham was willing to give his all because, um, because Abraham was willing to murder. <laughs> And Abraham was like suspending, says Kierkegaard, Abraham was suspending the ethical. Um, God has told Abraham to do a thing that God has also told Abraham not to do. Right. Thou shalt not murder, go murder your child as a sacrifice. Um, and Abraham um, um, doesn't try to get out of it. He doesn't try to rationalize it. He doesn't try to plead with God and be like, take me instead which would have shown doubt. He um, places wood on the back of Isaac, and he goes up the mountain, and when Isaac says, hey, uh, what are we going to do when we get there? Isaac, Abraham turns to Isaac and says, God is going to bring it about. Unquestionably, Abraham believes that something's going to happen where Isaac is going to be back to him. Either right. he's going to raise him from the dead, or he's going to. he says, God will give us the lamb. Right? So either, yeah. Can I just note that it's pretty Please. ice cold to make your kid carry his own wood for yeah, his yeah, own yeah. sacrifice? Yeah, like, yeah. That is ice cold. Well, he's, he's an old man. Abraham's ice. Oh, Abraham's old. They had a donkey, yeah, didn't they? Fair. Yeah. <laughs> that just seems ice cold. Like, I'd, if it was my last journey with my son, I would oh. want him to run around and play and ride the donkey and have a good time. Abraham says, no, man. You got to carry this. You're carrying sticks. the wood. Yeah. Yeah. That just seems um, kind of messed up. Yeah, a little messed yeah, up. A little bit. So, um, yeah, Abraham. So this is this is the for Kierkegaard. This is the hallmark of the person who has faith: is that they not unquestioningly um, believe, but that they believe that they are going to have 
the promises of God in the here and now. So he he, compa- he contrasts this with what he calls the night of in- infinite resignation. So to explain this, I'll use Kierkegaard's example. I think it's a bad example, but it kind of gets <laughs> it gets it across. Okay. Does the night of infinite resignation just kind of hang out like lots of Netflix? No, it, it's different. So he, he here, here are the he two, he says, oh. here are the two kinds of people. The person who just sort of <laughs> like hangs out Thanks. is, yeah. <laughs> oh, um, it was funny. Thank you. Thank good. you, AJ. I like it. Um, so the, he says, okay, here are the two different types of people. The night of faith, which we should all be, and the night of infinite resignation, which we all tend to be thinking that we are faithful, but really we're just being like romantic, like lame people. Anyway, so the night of infinite, so there's, there's, a, there's a young man, and he's like, a, he's a peasant. You know, he doesn't have much going for him. And he sees the princess, and man, he loves that princess. And there's some sort of like, he somehow believes that he is going to marry this princess. He's just a peasant. It's not going to happen. And everyone's like, you're an idiot. You're never going to marry her. I think I knew this guy in college. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but he believes that he's going to marry her. And, um, uh, and uh, he says, um, the night of infinite resignation is the person who like completely lives for this princess. Um, and he is going, let's see if I can find it. Um, um, he's going to live f- for this princess and, um, uh, and um, his love for the princess would take on for him the expression of an eternal love would acquire religious character, be transfigured into a love for the eternal being which, although it denied fulfillment, still reconciled him once more in the eternal consciousness of his love's validity in an eternal form that no reality can take from him. Yep. Okay, that's a lot of about Dante? Yeah. He is, yeah, I think he honestly. is. Yeah. But he says, the night of infinite resignation says, you know what? I'm never going to marry her but the fact that I have loved her and seen her and been with her on the same earth has elevated my soul into the heaven of love. And I can, even though I'm never going to have her, I have been elevated into very love itself. And Kierkegaard says, that guy's lame. Um, that guy <laughs> has resigned himself to never being in love. The Knight of Faith says... I'm going to get that girl. Mm, right. <laughs> I am going to be with that girl in this life. Right. Uh, I'm not going to resign myself to the fact that like I could like that being in love with her has like elevated me into some sort of spiritual realm. Uh, I believe I'm going to marry her. Mm. <laughs> and so he says that guy is um, that's the 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 knight of faith. Right. Kierkegaard says that most people are too clever by half, and what they do is they kind of romanticize their longings and then sort of resign themselves to, well, if I never have it. Well, kind of like the journey is the destination, that, right? Like, isn't that more noble exactly. if I never get it? If I Yeah. So there's two guys, and got, one guy's like, it was worth it just to like have thought about loving her that I have elevated my heart into love itself. And the other guy's like, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go hit on her, right? Like I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Talk I got a number, bro. Yeah, I yeah. yeah. like them apples. Exactly. Yeah. And so he says that that kind of attitude looks like simple-minded boorishness, mm. but in reality, what's happening on the inside of that person's soul is a, is faith. Faith that they are going to that they are going to be able to see in this life the promise that they have. Now, with the guy and the girl, it's a little different because, like, if she marries somebody else, like, sorry, buddy, it doesn't right. matter how much faith you have. But he says that that is kind of the attitude that Abraham has, where Isaac's, where if someone stopped Abraham, was like, dude, you're gonna go, you're gonna go kill your son. Well, maybe when you kill your son. He will be in heaven when God mentioned that you were going to have, uh, uh, you know, offspring as numerous as the he stars in the sky. Children. He meant spiritual children, and Isaac is going to go be a star in the sky. And Abraham would be like, "No, no, that's not going to happen. God's going to like do something cool." Right. And uh, <laughs> right. And so yeah, that's why I made Isaac carry his own wood. Yeah. Because right. he's going to, you know, and because um, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. Yeah. He'll take care of that. And Kiergard is huh. convinced that this was Abraham's disposition because as soon as God gave him the ram. Abraham immediately received Isaac back with joy, whereas Kierkegaard said, if if Abraham was a knight of infinite resignation, he would have had a moment of cognitive dissonance where 
what happened didn't conform to his thought, right. and he didn't understand what was happening. But the fact that he immediately received uh, uh, Isaac back with joy was him being like, ah, dope, God did it, right? right? And because, mm. so almost that Abraham was simple as opposed to like have this complex system of having to figure everything out. And instead of, wait, I'm not going to have spiritual right. children? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. a disappointment yeah. that it didn't go the way he wanted it to. How, how, so how does this work? Right. So the one way I want to describe this, and this is going to sound super lame, is there's a, a popular meme that goes around the internet. Uh-oh. And it's one that's where, maybe if you've never heard it, I can I don't mean to go down this train of thought, but it's like where there's this bell curve. Uh-huh. Yes. And on the one side, you kind of have like a troglodyte person. Yep. And on the other side of the of the far right wing of the bell curve, you have this like sage in a hood who's like super smart. Yes. And then in the middle, you've got that like, um, the like rage Major- crying, but majority of people, the majority right? of people. Yeah, yeah. And so usually you see that, um, in like, you know, like LOL by the dip and you've got like, or whatever name. Well, yeah. Well, but the, the meme is that the, the troglodyte on the left and the super smart person on the right are, are saying, saying the, the same, same thing. thing. And it's these people in the middle who are overthinking. Yes, right? exactly. And so it's almost, so Kierkegaard is almost saying like the night of faith is, like the person on both sides of that bell curve, sure. that you're either the troglodyte that's just like, yeah, man, obey God. Right. Um, or you're the sage that's like, yeah, dude, you just got to obey God. And the people in the middle are like, no, you can't just obey God. You have to think about like the fact that this is going to be elevating right. your soul into a night of, you know. And did, did you find one? I just found one. Can you, and can it's you, can a, you read it? It's a stock one. Okay. And it says, this is local top. Bitcoin RSI is in a double top. Plus the dollar is deflating. Bitcoin is a risk on asset and markets could collapse that's the guy in the middle, middle that is crying and stressing right. and has glasses. The guy on the far left and the guy on the far right say, I buy because number go up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are lots of, it'll be like, you know, um, make products and, and ship them. That's the dumb person and the smart person. And the middle one is we need a, a market fit plan. We need a business plan. We need to do all this work ahead of time. So again, it's that overthinking middle versus the two people on the side who are doing the right thing. That's this right. It's great. It's I've gr- never it's, seen this. It's great. It's, it's great really fun. It's a delightful yeah. meme. It's great. So, um, Kierkegaard is saying that the night of faith is going to end up looking like a dumb person. A dumb person. But what's the the actual action that's happening on the inside of their soul, if you could see it, would sort of blast you into in the glory of it would sort of blast you into into humility. Um, and the overthinking, systemically thinking person. Um, would say like, well, God's trying to teach me this lesson or God's trying to bring me here. God's trying, oh, it's like he means spiritual children. We're trying to cram um, God's will into some sort of system of thought. And he says, Abraham doesn't do that. Now, there are other characters in scripture who do do that. Other ones that say like, God, you got to prove this to me or God, I don't know if this is going to work. Moses, where, uh, you know, he, instead of God says, speak to the rock, Moses whacks the rock. And God's like, dude, you're not going to the promised land. Um, so we have examples of doubt mixed with faith. But Kierkegaard says that Abraham's story is one of showing that purity of faith because we don't have that wavering. And Abraham comes across either looking like cold hearted or, um, or like a saint. Uh, and because we don't have that wavering of faith, uh, Kierkegaard assumes that that Abraham, and just in his matter-of-fact answer, God will provide the sacrifice. And we don't have, yeah, what Kierkegaard says is what we don't have with Abraham is anguish. Right. We have anguish with the rich young man. When he says, what must I do to get into heaven? Jesus is like, you got to sell your stuff. And the rich young man's like, ah, crap, because he had great possessions. Right. We see anguish because he did not want to accept the, the, the path that God was calling him to. We don't see the anguish with Abraham. We don't have a story where Abraham like couldn't sleep that night. We don't have it where like Abraham got to the mountain really early or got to the mountain really late or was like looking for an, an out. Um, uh, um, we don't have him lie to Isaac. He tells him what he thinks. God will provide the lamb. It could be Isaac. It could be something else. Um, we don't have him be like, shut up, Isaac. Like, just, you know, we don't, you know, like we, we, uh, we don't get this, any, uh, exam, any sort of, um, uh, uh, evidence of Abraham's doubt. And because, Not like Gideon. Yes, right? exactly. Not right. like Gideon, where Gideon's you like, you need to prove, prove this it. six ways to Sunday, yeah, right. make the 
make the fleece wet. Now make mm-hmm. the ground wet, not the fleece. Now do it was just all over the place. Mm-hmm. I want to read this passage. So yeah, the, if we're talking about that bell curve, the people in the middle are what um, That's Kierkegaard your... calls tragic heroes or knights of infinite resignation. People who are like, oh, well, I can't understand it, but um, it must be that uh, I will get my, I will, I will see Isaac again in the next life. Um, and it's like, no, God promised you multitudes of people in this life. Like, like don't, don't try to turn it into a metaphor. Take it at face value. <laughs> yeah, take it at face value. I know I would have been the bad kind. Yeah, 100%. I, w- I would have been walking to that mountain thinking maybe God is trying to show that he's whimsical exactly. by establishing a paradox. And I, so here I am in service of a paradox and this is going to like establish the faith for future. Or he's trying to show that whimsy is a part of his person. I would have been yeah. going through all the all motions. LOL, obey God. Or, right? Like yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It should have been just walk him to the mountain and do the thing yeah, and right. up, turns out God's rad. So um, Kierkegaard says this, if in the guise of tragic hero, for higher than one I cannot come, I were summoned to such an extraordinary royal progress as that to the mountain of Moriah. I know very well what I would have done. So he, this is what he's saying, uh, what AJ just said. I would not have been coward enough to stay home, nor would I have rested on the way or dawdled or forgotten the knife to create some delay. I am fairly certain I would have been there on the dot with everything arranged. I might even have come too early instead so as to have done with it quickly. But I also know what else I would have done. The moment I mounted the horse, I would have said to myself, now everything is lost. God demands Isaac. I sacrifice him and with him all my joy. Yet God is love and for me continues to be so. For in the temporal world, God and I cannot talk together. We have no common language. Perhaps someone or other in our time would be foolish enough, envious enough of the great to want to suppose and have me suppose that I that had I actually done this, I would have done something even greater than Abraham. For wouldn't my immense resignation be far more idealistic and poetic than Abraham's narrow-mindedness? And yet, this is the greatest falsehood. For my immense resignation would be a substitute for faith. And then he goes on to say that Abraham believed on the strength of the absurd, for there could be no question of human calculation— and it was indeed absurd that God, who demanded this of him, should in the next, should in the next instant withdraw the demand. Um, um, he believed on the strength of the absurd, for all human calculation had long since been suspended. Um, and then Kierkegaard goes off to describe what this man would look like in the modern age. And he basically describes somebody that just lives a simple, boring, suburban life. He, like, gets on the bus, and he reads the newspaper, and he goes to church every Sunday, and he raises his kids, and he pays his taxes. And, and socialists look at him and say, he's a, co- he's a capitalist. And capitalists look at him and say, he's a socialist. Right. And, um, uh, and he's just sort of living this common life, and he looks kind of like a moron. But he's doing it because he believes that following God's commands— uh, um, are uh, uh, lead to the better life in this life, not just in saying like, oh, well, I give up my worldly desires so that I may one day taste heaven. Um, he's basically like, you know, LOL, obey God. Like, <laughs> this, this reminds me of one of the, so after I read some, some Nietzsche, I think it was Fear and Trembling, Twilight of the Idols. I think it was that one. No, not Fear and Trembling. It was Twilight of the Idols, The Antichrist. Anyway, it's one of Nietzsche's books, and one of his main criticisms of Christians is that we smell like death. We are always thinking about the afterlife and never thinking about this life, often to the detriment of this current life. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think that's a valid criticism, right? God came that we might have life and have it to the fullest, and I think sometimes we are abdicators of this, this life. And I like what you're saying because it seems like it is an answer for the man of faith to that criticism, Mm-hmm. Is is a life of current knighthood? Does yes. that make sense? But the full life doesn't look like. It doesn't look like what Nietzsche thinks it does. That's what I'm. Yeah, because if he's looking for <laughs> the hero who will claim their values and like fight for those values and you know assert power to establish them, that's not what this knight looks like. Yeah. No. In, well, yeah, Nietzsche's Ubermensch was a criminal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For, well, because so, he. Fell under his own laws, right? Exactly. Like he didn't follow yeah. the law of man. I'm not going to buy what he's selling. But sure. I do like this as an answer to that specific criticism. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Kierkegaard has, Kierkegaard 
um, is annoyed, probably because he sees it of himself, and he so he so he says of the the person who basically overthinks Christianity almost, or overthinks the life of the spiritual life of faith, oh, and man, tries to fit. Time. I know, and then fills every <laughs> tries to fit everything into that you paradigm. Time with Kierkegaard, is that what you're? This is. It's going to hit close to home. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Where, I, I, I think Graham brings a topic that he doesn't want to say to both of us, and so then he just brings it to the podcast. Um, I've been thinking about neighbors recently. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about cleanliness. And classical... thinking about fences. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, no, but so Kiergaard, he basically the... Um, uh, uh, the person that he thinks we should be are kind of like boring suburban dads. Like, and, yes. and, and yeah. to me that all, I like, I, I think this, this rubs us all wrong, but, um, because we, uh, you know, overthinking it is probably the sub, the sub, uh, um, title of our podcast. Yes. 100%. Um, <laughs> but this is actually, I think a really, uh, really helpful thing is, uh, and I think that, that meme bell curve fits it exactly. Just sort of like, um, well, LOL, like obey God, as opposed to being the the overthinking middle. Um, and then the second half of the book, I, I wasn't purposely getting into because he spends a lot of time, and this kind of opens up a whole realm into ethics, where he talks about Abraham's life of faith meant that he was willing to suspend the ethical. And what Kierkegaard means by this is that Abraham um, followed God to the point where he was even willing to say like, well, God told me to murder my son. God also tells me not to murder and murdering is wrong. I don't know, whatever. I, 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 maybe even that's wrong to say it. I don't even think it's a whatever. It's the holding of those two things at the same time. And Kierkegaard says that that, at that ability and that disposition to hold, to suspend the ethical in the pursuit of faith is good. Um, but that opens up a whole, that has opened uh, Kierkegaard. That that's the one point that a, a lot of people sort of jump on Kierkegaard to um, to take issue with. Oh, how can God sort of like um, go above the law that He's commanded us? To, how can God, who is good, ask you to do something which is unethical? And, I was and, just going to say, next time He tells me to murder, I am on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but exactly, so how do you do that? Like, how, yeah. how how can you how can you know that the command is coming from a correct place God, yeah. if it is? Controverting some other, so I, I think right. of this in in contrast to Hamlet. Whereas Hamlet, like everyone's like uh, Hamlet's like, oh, maybe that was a demon that talked that to me. Maybe it's like Hamlet always wants to know before he will act. Mm-hmm. And here we have an example of of Abraham who is acting and knows, but is not assured. the The knowledge that he's acting on is, I'm obeying God. He all he needs to know is God has told me to do this, and I'm doing it. Uh, I don't need to understand it. And of course, I think that's a huge criticism that I remember when I was a kid, that was the criticism that people, that fellow, you know, kids would make against Christians be like, oh, you guys are just sort of like unthinking sheep who just like follow what this book tells you to do. Right. And uh, when you're a little kid, you're like, no, it's way more than that. And now you're older, you're like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> or Liv Kiergaard's saying like, yeah. Um, um, not that you're unthinking, it's that... Um, uh, your thinking has led you back to this. Your place. thinking has led you back to this place, and you. So your following of God is um, you. You can suspend the rational. You can suspend even the ethical, which is which is the the issue that I haven't settled in my own mind yet. Um, but this is faith, and so why Kierkegaard I think is often talked about as as an existentialist is because he says the man the the the, the, the calling of man the highest. Um, ability of man is to hold on to that absurdity and to have faith. But whereas we were talking about, was it Sartre? Or it Camus? was Sartre. Camus. It was Camus. Where Camus says, like, uh, I, I just sort of like embrace the absurdity of meaninglessness. Um, Kierkegaard has, a, I embrace the absurdity of God who seemingly says, talks out of both sides of his mouth. Mm. Um, yeah, Camus' criticism of him was that he he looked at the absurdity of the world and the meaninglessness and then made the jump to God gotcha. and thereby yeah. suppressed his intellect. And Camus says, I want to retain my intellect and the absurdity, and so I will lean. But he eventually, I feel like, just leans on rebellion. So yeah, they're yeah. Both, they both have to do something in the face of that meaninglessness and... Kierkegaard's leap makes more sense to me than Camus, which is a leap. He says that rebellion lends all the drama to life, but or all the all the 
nobility. Mm-hmm. Well, nobility isn't a thing if everything's meaningless. Mm-hmm. It's just rebellion okay. for the sake of rebellion. So, And so Abraham believed that he would see God's promise, that he would have a multitude of generations. Right. And he even believed it while he was walking up that mountain with a knife in the fire. And he received it. And when he got it back, he wasn't like, oh, oh my goodness. I'm getting it back. He received it immediately with joy, being like, I knew it, or whatever, right? Um, and he got, and then he saw the fulfillment of God's promise, even in the absurdity. So um, Kierkegaard says, yeah, if you're a pastor and you're preaching this, you are doing everybody a disservice by watering it down by saying, Abraham was willing to give his best. Uh, that's not what the story teaches. The story is teaching that this, the life of faith has as a requirement the suspension of your of your your ability to want to systematize and understand. I'm trying to connect that with what AJ was just talking about for Camus. So Kierkegaard clearly doesn't see this as meaningless, what Mm -mm. Abraham does. I don't know the question I'm formulating quite, but... Was it, did Camus fully understand Kierkegaard? No, not that. It's, um, uh, is there the same, so is there any tinge of despair Again, you're describing the good life, you know, you're taking your metaphor from a second ago of the good life is the suburban life. Well, that Camus would see that as despair, right? Yeah. So how does Kierkegaard think about like the goodness of that life? Like, again, I'm not I'm not clarifying this well, but in what way are they in conversation with each other if they might both be put under this thing called existentialism, um, but they come to radically different conclusions? Yeah. Let me just read a little bit about um, about what the the night of faith looks like yeah, to sure. Kierkegaard. Yeah. Um, the moment I first set eyes on him, I thrust him away, jump back, clasp my hands together, and say half aloud, "Good God, is this the person? Is it really him? He looks just like a tax gatherer." Yet it is indeed him. I come a little closer. Watch the least movement in case some small, incongruous optical telegraphic message from the infinite should appear. A glance, expression, gesture, a sadness, a smile betraying the infinite by its incongruity with the finite. No. He seems like, I want to see a sage. I want to see like a man like burning with the fire of heaven. No. He is solid through and through. His stance, vigorous. It belongs altogether to finitude. Not smartly turned out tansman taking a stroll to the Friesberg on a Sunday afternoon, treads the ground with sure of foot. He belongs altogether to the world. No petite bourgeois belongs to it more. One detects nothing of the strangeness and superiority that marks the night of the infinite. This man takes pleasure, takes part in everything, and whenever one catches him occupied with something, his engagement has the persistence of the worldly person whose soul is wrapped up in such things. He minds his affairs. To see him at them, you would think he was some pen pusher who had lost his soul to Italian bookkeeping. So attentive to detail is he. He takes a holiday on Sundays. He goes to church. No heavenly glance or any other sign of the incommensurable betrays him. If one didn't know him, it would be impossible to set him apart from the rest of the crowd. This is my favorite part. For at most, his hearty, lustful psalm singing proves that he has a good set of lungs. In the afternoon, he takes a walks in the woods. He delights in everything he sees, in the thronging humanity, the new omnibuses. Like, uh, apparently they had just put in a bus system in Copenhagen. And a lot of the intellectuals were like, this is, the modernity is going to ruin the youth. Uh And um, uh, Kierkegaard was like, this guy's like, cool, buses. (laughs) Um, So he sort of goes on and says that here is somebody, if you look at them, just seems to be planted in the world and completely enraptured with the world and, um, you know, drinks beer at the pub and sings real loud on Sundays and takes a holiday and, and like, is really good at his job. And uh, you look at him and you're like, oh, what a normie. Um, but in reality, this man is, like, shining with faith, like Abraham. And I love that. I think that that is, um, you know, where everybody uh, wants to be sort of like the bleeding romantic or, or whatever, just to, to say that the, the highest calling of man is to kind of be like dad bod. I don't know. It's like, it's, uh, it's, uh, that's great. Anyway. Yeah. I think that's really nice. Um, there are still questions that we right. could get through with Kierkegaard. The suspension of the ethical, I think, is, is a really interesting vein to go down. Yeah, um, for sure. And, um, but, uh, but I mean, I know 
that that's kind of look at my notes here. I think that's pretty much all I had. Um, what do you? So yeah, any any sort of further reflections on this? Um, I guess one question I would have post you guys is: Does that mean that attempting to systematize or attempting to bring everything is attempting to comprehend everything? Therefore, like a vice or a bad thing? Curiosity is again. We, we've talked. This has come up before. Curiosity yeah. is sometimes counted as a vice. Mm-hmm. There are things that aren't worth knowing. Uh, in a previous in between, AJ asked about whether he should read books about demons, and you know maybe that falls in that category. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sure. There would be limits there, but again, it, um, just in thinking about like the normy thing to do would be you know I want to read great books because they're popular, and I think that's a totally fine. I mean that's like the conceit yeah. of this whole podcast, right? So. Yeah, I'm liking that. I, again, I, I'm. There's still some level of like progression that I think is necessary because it's hard to distinguish this person from the one who's just like not not aware of the care. world. Yeah, yeah, yeah they yeah. just want to drink beer on Friday. Mm-hmm. You know, do you know what I mean? Like from the outside, yes. it might look the same, but someone who with intentionality is enjoying friendship and enjoying their wife and enjoying their children and reading and learning and but also taking breaks. You talked about Sabbath and church, mm-hmm. so. Again, I think from the outside, it would be really hard to distinguish between one type and the other. But I think it's something to aim at of, you know, again, like all some part of living should be directing your life toward building, having the same great day over and over again. Mm -hmm. And that great day isn't jumping out of an airplane. It's breakfast with your family and being some great martyr for love or being some great. You only do that once. Right. And then that's the end of it. But it's again, it's. doing work that matters Mm -hmm. and again time with people that you care about and things like that it did seem a bit like a dig at dante for sure yeah um which i i haven't rectified in my own mind as well i think it's kind of funny yeah (laughs) i kind of like it it's like dude get over yourself she died i don't know i think one of the things i've always thought about scripture is that and christianity in general is that it's made for simple people it's not it's not secret knowledge gnosticism Mm -hmm. club kind of thing it's here's how to live good and there are people who just follow it naturally and live a life of faith without asking a ton of questions. And it is hard to fault those people. I think I, I keep on thinking of this fairy tale I read once. I forget where I read it. You might be able to place it, but it's about a guy who lives in this little community and there's lots of grass and they do farming. And then he thinks he's going to go find the good life. And he travels all over the place and following the road to the good life eventually leads him right back to where he was. Mm-hmm. And they're all like, Hey, how was your trip? <laughs> And he could have been living there all along and he regrets taking the trip. And I wonder how, how much of the intellectual life is that. But on the same token, I can't help but feel that the man who has made that journey is a little bit more secure in that community than someone who hasn't. Right? The person who hasn't might be a little more vulnerable to enticements away from it. Yeah. Whereas the guy who has made the journey and has seen everything else has arrived in that community and wants to stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, this may be a bit of a plug for another book. Um, this reminds me of, of the book Brideshead Revisited, where you've got this family, this Catholic family, and the mom ends up being this like stalwart Catholic who has faith her whole life that everyone's going to come back to the come back to the church, and her kids are a mess, and her husband's in Italy with his mistress, and she's like, everyone's coming back, everyone's coming back, and the, the, as the book goes on, you're like, oh, this poor woman, she's so like this poor lady. And, you know, but she has that, that sort of faith that she is going to see this in this life, right. not in, not, not just sort of like resign herself to, oh, well, maybe it'll work out in the end of history. She's like, no, God's going to do stuff now. And there's something about that sort of, um, that optimism that I think Kierkegaard found attractive. And I think is he's getting to something about, yeah, the simplicity of faith and that it's not this overthinking it. So I like that bell curve. So whether yeah. you're the troglodyte or whether you're the sage on the bell curve, it doesn't really matter. Um, you arrive at the same place. Yeah. <laughs> isn't it weird that, so this book is kind of difficult to read, right? Yeah. Isn't it weird that it takes like a smart dude to say, just do the simple things? Like, is there yeah, something I guess. contradictory about that? The, the funny part is that he's like, I'm not, he's like, I'm in the middle. I'm an overthinker. Right. And yeah, he sort of like beats himself up over it. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, but the thing is like, Kierkegaard says it as like, the overthinking middle, and then you could probably go to the writings of, like, uh, Mueller, or and and find somebody that was just like, I had faith that God would do right. it. Yeah, <laughs> Mueller. Mueller never 
never establishes any yeah george Mueller mm-hmm. never establishes any grand heights of theology never talks about any systems he never asks for money right mm-hmm. it's, it, it's he he prays for things and he gets them he, it's his whole yeah, yeah his whole journal yeah. all of his books his memorial all, all of it i think it's his autobiography, uh, autobiography is just yeah. here's a bunch of stuff i prayed for that yeah. happened right. mm-hmm. and that's that's all it is yeah so um yeah, anyway, that's all I got. A little short for today, but um, I mean, existentialism, you get it done pretty quick. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that was aimed at me. No, no, but, no, uh, no. That's it's just, I think it's more a testament to um, I, maybe there's probably a whole like reams of things that I didn't understand by reading this. But Is this one you'll come back to for the second half of it? Uh, maybe. I'm, I'm slowly going through the second half where they're talking about the suspension of the ethical, and um, uh, I'm, I'm still working through it, but the, this first half um, is what, Kierkegaard is known for is sure. his reading of the story of Abraham and his recasting it in that way. Um, and I think it's useful. Uh, I think it's a great exercise also just in hermeneutics to not superimpose onto the stories things that aren't there. Right. So don't read Abraham as a tragic hero. Don't say like, you wonder what he must have been thinking. He must have been, and then insert your own interpretation there. It's not in the story. You can't say that Abraham was question, was doubting God because he may, might not have been. Um, um, so I think that's a good lesson is to, um, um, yeah, let, let the story sort of, um, sort of, uh, exist on its own and resist trying to, uh, superimpose too much interpretation on it because it may take you down a path that is, you know, not, uh, you know, you don't get the story in its fullness. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his best. So should we. It's mm-hmm. like, you're going to look at your dad a little, like in the pew across from you a little <laughs> right, bit, right. Uh, you know, side eye with that sermon. So, um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, I've had the Kierkegaard, like a Kierkegaard reader, like a selection of his works on my bookshelf for a long time, and have never dived in. Yeah. Anyway, is it, is it worthwhile? Is it? Uh, yeah, it's. Um, but you know, you got to take her, take her slow. Yeah. And um, yeah. So that's that's, uh, that's Kierkegaard. At least I'm that's fear and I, like it. I like that a lot. Cool. All right. This has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. You can find us online on Twitter at Classical Stuff, C-L-S-S-C-A-L Stuff. You can find uh, you can email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. Find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash classicalstuff. We'll have a little uh, after episode conversation right now. If you want to listen to that, you can find it on Patreon. You What else can people do? Find us on YouTube if you want to like look at our three pretty faces while we're talking about these things that's an option too i think that is it for today so for graham aj and thomas this is us signing off signing off bye bye